Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. In March of 1770, a young English farmer, just turned 16, watched as two of the young people were immersed in water upon a profession of their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. He was deeply moved by what he saw. As he wrote about this event many years later, I was considerably affected by what I saw and heard. The solemn immersion of a person on a profession of faith in Christ carried such conviction with it that I wept like a child on the occasion. The words of the psalmist, a good understanding of all they that do his commandments, left a deep and abiding impression on my mind. I was fully persuaded that this was the primitive way of baptizing and that every Christian was bound to attend to this institution of our blessed Lord. Convinced that Christ had commanded believers to be baptized by immersion, the young farmer was himself so baptized the following month, on April the 20th, 1770, almost exactly 250 years ago. He was baptized either in the River Snail or the River Cam, neither of which was far from where he lived in the market town of Soham, Cambridgeshire. A day or so after this event, the young man, whose name was Andrew Fuller, was riding through some fields near Soham and happened to meet some other young men from his town. Fuller later recalled how one of them, obviously deeply offended by hearing about Fuller's baptism, for many in the town were vehemently opposed to Baptist convictions, called after me, Fuller said, in very abusive language, and cursed me for having been dipped. In Fuller's day, there were three main types of Baptists in England. The largest group, the group that Fuller joined, were the particular Baptists, that is, the Calvinistic Baptists. There were the general Baptists, that is, Baptists who were Arminian in their theology. In the 18th century, they were in severe decline during, due to their abandonment of the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And then finally, there was a smaller group, the Seventh-day Baptists, that is, particular Baptists who worshipped on Saturday. These three groups were the only Christians in 18th and early 19th century Britain that insisted upon believers' baptism. All the other denominations, the Anglicans, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, and Methodists, upheld infant baptism, while the Quakers had dispensed with the rite altogether. In London, there were two specially constructed buildings that served during this era as baptistries for the numerous congregations of Baptists in the capital. According to one account, they were splendid structures with handsome marble fronts, elaborate suites of rooms, and well-equipped. But outside of London, though, next to no Baptist churches in this era possessed an indoor baptistry, and so baptism was usually done, usually done outdoors in a pond, in a stream, or a river, where all and sundry could come and watch. Baptists were thus provided with excellent opportunities to bear witness to their distinct convictions and their commitment to Christ. It was thinking probably of his own experience that prompted Fuller once to say that public baptisms had often been a vehicle for impressing upon many individuals their first convictions of the reality of religion. However, as we have seen with Fuller, the public nature of the rite also exposed them to ridicule and censure. James Butterworth, 
who pastored at Bromsgrove near Birmingham from 1755 to 1794, could state at a baptismal service in 1774, Baptism is a thing so universally despised that few can submit to it without apparent danger to their temporal interest, either from relations, friends, masters, or others with whom they have worldly connections. In 1778, Joseph Jenkins, who served as the pastor of the Baptist causes in Wrexham, Wales, and in London, refuted a series of unfounded charges against the Baptists, including the assertions that they conducted baptisms in the nude, that they baptized women apparelled in a single garment, and that they even immersed women in the final stages of pregnancy. This accusation that the Baptist practice of immersion involved immodesty was one that had been common since the emergence of the Baptists in the mid-17th century. For instance, the first doctrinal standard of the particular Baptists, what we call the First London Confession of Faith, was issued in part to rebut the charge that the Baptists of that time were involved in doing acts unseemly in the dispensing the ordinance of baptism, not to be named amongst Christians. Even some of those who are deeply appreciative of individual Baptists could be critical of their stance on believers' baptism. The story is told of a visit by a Congregationalist minister from Newport Pagnell to Andrew Fuller's good friend John Sutcliffe, who pastored the Baptist church in Olney, Buckinghamshire. The minister had come to ask Sutcliffe's advice on a certain matter. As Sutcliffe had given his opinion to the great satisfaction and pleasure of the visiting minister, the latter was on the verge of leaving when he took Sutcliffe's hand, shook it heartily and said, I do love you, Brother John, but should love you much better if you were not a Baptist. Sutcliffe replied with his customary kindness, but with also evident conviction, should you not love Jesus Christ much better if he were not a Baptist? Baptist works responding to these attacks on believers' baptism invariably devoted large sections to proving that believers, never infants, are the proper subjects of baptism and that they should be baptized by immersion and not by any other mode. The equally important subject of the meaning and significance of baptism was consequently often overlooked. As William H. Brackney has rightly noted, from their intense in preoccupation over textual details in the New Testament and a desire to recreate the primitive church, Baptists have spent their energies on the techniques, styles, and fitness of candidates for participation in the sacraments rather than the mystery of the divine human relationships. On this podcast, in which we are kind of celebrating the semi-quincentennial of the baptism of Andrew Fuller 250 years ago, I want to look at a text written by Fuller in which he explores the meaning of baptism. It is a notable exception to Baptist practice in the way that they have often focused on mode and subject. It was written in 1802 as a circular letter for the Northamptonshire Association and is entitled The Practical Uses of Christian Baptism. It takes for granted the standard Baptist position on the right subjects of baptism and the proper mode in which it is to be administered, and it concentrated on outlining the meaning and significance of the rite. In Fuller's words, he desired to focus his reader's attention on the influence of this ordinance, where it produces its proper effects in promoting piety in individuals and purity in the church. At the time when Fuller wrote this circular letter, he was the pastor of the Baptist cause at Kettering, Northamptonshire, where he'd been since 1782. Raised in a household of farmers, he was a big, broad-shouldered man who had little formal education. He was an autodidact and looked to the evangelical abolitionist William Wilberforce at least as the very 
picture of a village blacksmith. In the words of Benjamin Davies, the Welsh Old Testament scholar who served as the first principal of Canada Baptist College in Montreal in the 1840s, Fuller began to preach when very unlearned. Yet he was so sensible of his disadvantages, Davies went on, that he used great diligence to acquire that knowledge, without which he could never be what he at length became, and that is one of the most valuable men of his time, and decidedly the most useful minister in our religious community. It was not without reason that another Welsh Baptist, in a biography of Fuller, called him the Elephant of Kettering. Fuller began the practical uses of Christian baptism by maintaining that the principal reason why God instituted this ordinance is that it might serve as a solemn and practical profession of the Christian religion. As an open profession of the name of Christ, baptism is nothing less than an oath of allegiance to the King of Zion. Baptism is a sign to believers that they have solemnly surrendered themselves up to Christ, taking him to be their prophet, priest, and king, engaging to receive his doctrine, to rely on his atonement, and to obey his laws. In a letter he wrote a couple of years earlier, in 1800, to William Ward, the Serampore missionary, Fuller developed this idea of baptism as the place of openly professing submission to Christ. The importance of this ordinance of baptism, he told Ward, arises from its being the distinguishing sign of Christianity, that by which they, that is Christians, were to be known, acknowledged, and treated as members of Christ's visible kingdom. As many of you as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. It is analogous to a soldier enlisting into his majesty's service, putting on the military dress. The scriptures lay great stress upon confessing Christ's name before men. Baptism is one of the most distinguished ways of doing this. When a man becomes a believer in Christ, he confesses it usually in words to other believers. But the appointed way of confessing it openly to the world is by being baptized in his name. Christianity, Fuller went on to observe in the circular letter, contains both truths to be believed and precepts to be obeyed. And in a marvelous way, the rite of baptism provides encouragement for believers to be faithful in adhering to both. First, since baptism is to be carried out according to Matthew 28:19 in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, submission to the ordinance entails avowal, an avowal of the fact that God is a triune being. Well acquainted with the history of the early church, Fuller rightly stated that this baptismal formula was widely used in that era to argue for the doctrine of the Trinity. It is interesting, the very same point had been made a quarter of a century earlier by John Collett Ryland, who's probably best known for being the eccentric Baptist who uh, rebuked William Carey in his zeal for overseas missions. Also writing in a circular letter for the Northampton Sire Association, John Collerile observed that the doctrine, the true doctrine of the Trinity has been kept up in the Christian church by the ordinance of baptism more than by any other means whatsoever. And thus Fuller noted, to relinquish the doctrine of the Trinity is tantamount to the virtual renunciation of one's baptism. In making this link between baptism and the Trinity, Fuller was well aware that he was venturing onto the grounds of a major controversy. Throughout the previous century, a uh, tradition of heterodox theology had insisted that the scriptures be interpreted chiefly through the grid of what was regarded as sound reason. Given such a hermeneutic, it's not surprising that orthodox Trinitarianism should come under heavy attack. For Fuller and the majority of the particular Baptist community, however, the triunity of God was ultimately a mystery. 
fully attested to by divine revelation in the scriptures, but not completely understandable by mere human reason. As Fuller commented elsewhere regarding this vital doctrine, it is a subject of pure revelation. Whether we can comprehend it or not, we are required humbly to believe it and to endeavor to understand so much as God has revealed concerning it. Baptism into the triune name also entails a commitment to the belief that salvation is the joint work of all three members of the Godhead, the Father's sovereign election, the Son's all-sufficient atonement, and the sanctifying work wrought by the Spirit. In particular, though, it points to Christ's saving work. Here is Fuller again. The immersion of the body in water, which is a purifying element, contains a profession of our faith in Christ, through the shedding of whose blood we are cleansed from all sin. Hence, baptism in the name of Christ is said to be for the remission of sins. Not that there is any virtue in the element, whatever be the quantity, nor in the ceremony, though of divine appointment, but it contains a sign of the way in which we must be saved. Sin is washed away in baptism, in the same sense as Christ's flesh is eaten and his blood drank in the Lord's Supper. The sign, when rightly used, leads to the thing signified. Remission of sins is ascribed by Peter not properly to baptism, but to the name in which the parties were to be baptized. And thus also Saul was directed to wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Fuller points out here that in itself the act of immersion possesses no salvific value, but it contains a sign or illustration of the way of salvation, and the sign, when rightly used, leads to the thing signified. As a dear friend and colleague Stan Fowler argues, the phrase rightly used appears to mean something like used as an outward and formal expression of genuine and personal faith. The statement leads to the thing signified must then mean that when the person being baptized has such a faith, then baptism in some way confirms this faith and the individual's share in the benefits of the gospel. Fuller does not develop this thought, but if he had, he might well have developed it along the lines of his earlier statement to William Ward, which has already been cited. When a man becomes a believer in Christ, he confesses it usually in words of other believers, but the appointed way of confessing it openly to the world is by being baptized in his name. In other words, baptism is the place where conversion to Christ is ratified, and to borrow a phrase from another great particular Baptist theologian of the 18th century, John Gill, faith discovers itself in baptism. Fuller then proceeded to explain that Christ experienced the deluge of God's wrath due to the sins of fallen men and women, but he rose triumphantly from the dead. Fallen men and women are saved solely on the basis of his death and resurrection. Baptism, which involves both immersion and immersion, is thus an extremely apt sign or outward and formal expression of genuine personal faith in Christ's saving work. Not only does baptism speak of cardinal truths to believe, but it also teaches disciples of Christ how to live in a God-honoring way. On the basis of Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Fuller argued that baptism is a sign to the baptized disciple that he or she has been baptized into Christ's death and thus united with him in his death. There is, of course, a difference between the death of Christ and that of the disciple. Christ died for sin. The disciple is to die to sin. When he or she is baptized, therefore, there is a commitment made to die to sin and to the world. Baptism thus serves as a hedge that God sets around his people, which tends more than a little to preserve them from temptation. This comparison of baptism to a hedge 
brings to mind a favorite image for the church in 17th and 18th century particular Baptist circles, namely the enclosed garden. It's not surprising, therefore, to find Fuller explicitly employing this image a little further on in this circular letter. He's been arguing that believers' baptism was originally designed to be the boundary of visible Christianity, the line of demarcation or distinction between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. Where the original design of this distinguishing ordinance is ignored, Fuller argued, and persons admitted to baptism without any profession or personal religion or upon the profession of others on their behalf, then the church will no longer be a garden enclosed, but an open wilderness where every beast of prey can range at large. This description of the church as a garden enclosed was drawn directly from Song of Solomon 4.12, which in the King James Version reads thus, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. And it's an interesting connection here between Fuller's Baptist thinking and Baptist theology to an understanding of the Song of Solomon as a Christological, ecclesiological text, which goes all the way back to early Christian theologians like Hippolytus of Rome and Origen. In using this description of the church as a garden enclosed and linking baptism with Fuller, with it, Fuller was reaffirming the fact that at the heart of the particular Baptist tradition was a radical nonconformity. It was a nonconformity that was much more than a protest with regard to what was perceived as the unscriptural nature of some of the rites of the Church of England. Nonconformity to the ceremonies of the Church of England is of no account, Fuller said on another occasion, if it be attended with conformity to the world. For Fuller, Believer's baptism spoke of a fundamental break with the forces that sought to press the heart and mind into the mold of this present age. Fuller was careful to stress in his circular letter, though, that the religion of Jesus does not consist in mere negatives. Baptism signifies not only death, but also resurrection. The immersion of the body from the waters of baptism is a sign of entrance into a new state of being, where the baptized believer should now be alive to God. Consequently, Baptism is never to be regarded as merely a sign, and nothing more, or simply an unmeaning ceremony. It is a meaning-laden ordinance which bears witness to the most radical transformation a human being can undergo in this world. As Fuller concluded the letter, he wisely reminded his readers that obedience to this ordinance is never to be regarded as a substitute for a life of holiness and universal righteousness. He referred them to the pointed reminder that the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. When they trifled with idolatry and worldly lusts, they could not look to their participation in the privileges of baptism and the Lord's Supper to secure them from God's anger. And thus to hope that believers' baptism can guarantee a life of spiritual fruitfulness is to deceive oneself. It is the presence of Christ, Fuller emphasized, only that can keep us alive, either as individuals or as churches. Ultimately, the disciple is called to cling to Christ, not to a set of rites or even doctrines. John Clare, the Northamptonshire romantic poet, who was in his early 20s when Fuller died in 1815, spoke for many in England during this era, of which we have been talking about Fuller's uh, tract um, on baptism. When Clare wrote, It is with religion as it is with everything else. Its extremes are dangerous, and its medium is best. To such a mindset, believers' baptism seemed scandalous and outré. But for Andrew Fuller, the radical nature of baptism lay in what the sign signified, 
a wholehearted commitment of one's entire being and resources to Christ. Or as Fuller said on another occasion, if we wish to see the Baptist denomination prosper, we must not expend our zeal so much in endeavoring to make men Baptists as in laboring to make Baptists and others Christians. If we be more concerned to make proselytes to a party than converts to Christ, we shall defeat our own end. And however just our sentiments may be with respect to the subjects and mode of baptism, we shall be found symbolizing with the Pharisees who are employed in tithing mint and cumin to the neglect of judgment, mercy, and the love of God. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.